Hello, hello. Welcome to the second episode of the Toronto Marl Bros podcast. Today we're going to be going over COVID stopping Dallas's season before it starts, Barzell finally putting pen to paper in Long Island, and for the lightning round, takeaways about players and lines from Toronto's blue and white game. Also, stay tuned for some exciting podcast updates on the horizon. As usual, I'm your host, Evan, and joining me, as usual again, is Luke. Say hello. How's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. How are you feeling about today? Feeling good. All right, let's get into our first topic. So let's start by talking about the Dallas Stars. To give you all some background about what's been happening with them, on Friday the 8th, the NHL announced that at least eight members of the Dallas Stars organization, including players and staff, have tested positive for COVID-19. Because of this, the team will not start their season until Tuesday the 19th at the earliest, and the team's facilities will be shut down for an undisclosed amount of time. Also, every player that tests positive must isolate for at least 10 days. Do you think this is something that's going to be a repeat occurrence throughout the season, and how concerned should we be about it? Well, many quote-unquote normal things have started to come back during COVID, but most if not all have come back with some sort of catch. And hockey is not really any different. It's great that they've figured out how to have a season. I know myself and every other hockey fan in the world right now is grateful for the fact that the NHL will start this week. But the reality is we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Anything can happen and more COVID-related incidents will arise. There's actually been reports that as many as three other teams besides the Dallas Stars have COVID exposure as well, including Colorado. But both the NHL and the NHLPA know that. And the bubble, you know, it's going to seem like a luxury when the season is said and done with because it's going to be a grind this year. But in 2020, both the NFL and the MLB proved that things can continue in the end, regardless of setbacks. It's just going to take a bit of creative scheduling and a lot of patience. Now, in terms of fantasy, what does this mean for people who drafted players that need to isolate for COVID reasons? Is this something that's going to be a major setback? How much do they need to worry about this? In short, they don't really have to worry about it. Given the murky nature of the situation, their season could be further delayed, and that could end up being a bit of a disaster. But at this point, there's really no reason to assume the worst case. The fantasy season has only just begun, and there's definitely no need to panic whatsoever, even if you're a bit short-handed for the first couple of weeks. For people like myself, aka people who have Anton Kudobin in multiple pools, it might hurt a bit more. But such is life in a hockey COVID crossover world, and you won't be the only person in your league who will experience challenges like this. There's going to be players unavailable due to isolation scattered throughout the entire season. Moving on to other news around the league, the New York Islanders have finally announced that the Matt Barzell contract holdout is over. The 23-year-old center has signed a three-year deal with an average annual value of $7 million, a contract that will end right before his final year as a restricted free agent. Do you think this deal is a win for the Isles? I was honestly expecting Barzell to sign something similar to the Miko Rantanen contract, which is $9.25 million over six years. But with that being said, the Rantanen deal was negotiated in a COVID-free world. The cap was expected to rise significantly but it didn't. Is this deal a win? In the short term, yes. 
7 million is obviously a great price for a first line center who's a lock to put up 60 to 80 points over a regular season. But once the deal is up, the ball is completely in his court. The ball's in his court? I thought he was going to be a restricted free agent. How would he get the leverage in that situation if he's not really allowed to test the free agent market? As you were saying before, the contract will expire when Barzell has one year of restricted free agency remaining. And naturally, the Isles will want to lock him up at that point to something long-term. But imagine this. Barzell is a point-per-game player this season, then puts up 80 points in 2021-2022. Then in 2022-2023, he puts up 90 points. It's his contract year. At that point, he's 26 years old. He has three 80-plus point seasons to his name. He is a first-line center. And we are talking about a guy who has three five-point games as a rookie. The ceiling for offensive production could be even higher. Considering his ceiling, this bridge deal looks a bit risky for the Isles in the long term. They might have been able to lock him up for a lot longer, or maybe even at a lower AAV over a longer amount of years. How much do you think he'll be able to get when time comes to renegotiate his contract? At that point, he could hypothetically seek John Tavares' money, or at least something in that ballpark. He'll be a number one center in the midst of his prime, and if the Isles can't give him the long-term extension he wants ahead of that final RFA year, he can simply sign a qualifying offer. The team is obligated to give him that choice, and it would allow him to become a UFA the following summer. Like I said, it solves things for now, but makes things really tricky down the road. In four years, their franchise player can now potentially walk away for nothing during his prime. He holds all the cards. Touching on down the road, as you mentioned, uh, what does all of this mean for the Islanders' decor going forward? For those of you who might not have been keeping up in the offseason, they also lost Devon Taves and haven't necessarily replaced Johnny Boychuk either. Could their blue line become a problem area? First of all, the Taves loss was astounding to me. That will definitely hurt in the future. To answer your question, the defense is somewhat concerning, given the lack of depth and the amount of question marks, but they've managed to remain competitive in recent years anyways. Ryan Pulak and Nick Letty should continue to be steady, and Adam Pellick is decent as well. Noah Dobson, he may still be a tad raw, but the rest of the defense is honestly pretty uninspiring. Despite their generally weaker blue line, their goaltending has held fast as a last bastion of defense for Barry Trotz's style. With Grice gone, and obviously Leonard leaving before, do you think that their current goaltenders will be able to hold it down back there? Do you think Sorokin might have a bit of a rockier start? Their goaltending has been especially incredible over the last couple of seasons. Although whether or not that will be sustained with a Varlamov-Sorokin tandem remains to be seen. Obviously, we know that Varlamov can get it done, even though he's been somewhat inconsistent in his career. Sorokin, he's a rookie. You never really know what you're going to get from a KHL goalie or any KHL player making the transition to North America. What is going to help their goaltending is the fact that their biggest strength has really just been their defensive structure. They've bought into Barry Trotz. And the weird thing is, though, that really hasn't necessarily translated into special teams. Oh, really? I haven't really had my ear to the ground on that front. Have their special teams not been, like, up to snuff? That's a surprising hole to find in a team that made it to the conference finals, especially given their play style. It really is, but let me paint you a picture. In 2018-19, the Isles allowed the fewest goals of any team in the league. Less than 200, I remember. 
but had a middle of the pack penalty kill. It ranked like 17th. Then last season, they finished fifth in goals against. So again, very good. But their penalty killing was 15th. Like, it's so odd that a team with a middling penalty kill can generally stop pucks at such an elite rate. But that's the power of trots. His players would go through a wall for him, and they could usually lock it down when the game was on the line. They're just a very clutch team. What about the offense? Now that they've re-signed Barzell, which is the whole reason we're on this topic, do you think their offense has been taken care of, or is that still rocky? You know, Isles fans don't want to admit it, but the team's offensive output has really dropped since the departure of John Tavares. In 2017-18, Tavares' last season on the island, the Islanders finished 7th in the league in goals 4 and 6th on the power play. As we've been discussing, their defensive system and penchant for keeping pucks out has been their calling card. But their goal scoring and power play production has really suffered over the last two years. In 2018-19, the Owls finished 22nd in goals forward and had a 29th ranked power play. But again, despite this, they went to the postseason. They won a playoff series. It was actually just their second playoff series win since 1994. Fun fact. So this franchise knows pain. But it was a sweep of the Penguins. Damn, the way you talk about this team, I would think they haven't been able to win anything in years. What are the key components that helped them secure those playoff series wins over the last couple seasons? They had some success against the odds, all because of elite goaltending and Trotz's system. Last season, they were 24th in goals for and power play percentage, but they went all the way to the conference finals. It just goes to show that anything can happen in hockey. It's by far the most volatile sport. So perhaps the Isles will get by on goaltending, clutch goals, and Trotz again. Or maybe their forwards and defense will take another step. You just really never know. All right, I'm getting a message from our producer that if we don't move on from this topic soon, he's going to rebrand us as an Islanders podcast. So let's wrap this segment up. Before we do that, do you have any final thoughts? Hmm, all I'll say is this. They really need to take advantage of this season. Next summer, they have roughly $6.5 million in cap space, and that's the sign Sezikis, Bovillier, Dalcole, Pelic, and Sorokin. Sezikis is a UFA, and the other four are RFAs, but they're all ARB eligible. So really, the kind of year they have will determine a lot. This team is going to change, though. They're currently, right now, $3 million over the cap because they signed Barzell. So there could even be cap casualties before Tuesday. Being able to put Boychek on LTIR will help, but it's still going to be tricky. You know, Lou has his work cut out for him. Getting back to our roots here, the Toronto Maple Leafs won their first and only preseason game. Unfortunately, they also lost their first and only preseason game. For those who aren't following my incredibly witty humor, this year's blue and white game was an in-house show match, featuring three regulation periods, two shootouts between those periods, and one overtime to cap the whole thing off. This allowed us to get a better look at some fresh faces and hypothetical lines, which will be the topic of today's lightning round. Are you ready, Luke? Absolutely. Let's do this. Starting things off, the line that's on everybody's minds, Matthews, Marner, Thornton. So it was really, really nice to finally see this line in action. So much hype around it. And honestly, it looked good. Matthews and Marner, you know, they have rapport. They're faster because they're younger. It looked a bit awkward just because Thornton naturally isn't going to step in and maintain that same chemistry. But, you know, for the most part, he did what he was supposed to. He opened up space with his creativity. He made some nice passes. Um, yeah, you know, I just don't have any problems with it, even though it looks like it could still probably grow. 
Nice. How about Barabanov, Spezza, Simmons? One of the bottom six lines. This is a line I really enjoyed because I just wasn't really expecting very much. Obviously, you know, I've watched some footage of Barabanov in the KHL. I know a lot about this player, but it's a whole different ballpark when you're seeing them against NHL-level competition. And I really felt that he held his own. You know, he really, he looked like a veteran out there. He really was good on the forecheck. He was strong on the puck in general. Simmons as well, like he just, everyone's been talking about his foot speed, his injury history, but he just looked good out there. He was flying. Spezza as well. You know, you know what you're going to get from Spezza. He was a good facilitator up the middle there, showed some good IQ. And they like had a pretty natural chemistry considering they're a new line. So that was very nice to see as well. That is nice to see. How about the unproven ones? Nick Robertson, Adam Brooks, and Joey Anderson. You know, it's funny. About halfway through this game, I was thinking to myself, like, wow, I've noticed Adam Brooks and Joey Anderson on multiple occasions tonight. But where's Nick Robertson? And it's kind of like he heard me because from then on, he just kind of got back to his old self. He looks like a bit bigger than last year. Like, you can definitely tell he's added some muscle. Obviously, he still has some room to grow. Shot on the power play was lethal, and that's just a preview of what you're going to get from him. But I really like that line. Lots of energy, lots of youth, obviously. Adam Brooks is a fringe player, even though he's like done really well in his call-up time. Sheldon Keefe likes him, too. He's been a Marley's product. Joey Anderson got more for Andreas Janssen, if you're not aware of that trade. He showed a lot of good energy as well. He was very tenacious, especially. like He really just like played a good 200-foot game. So it's just nice that you know these guys are really far down a death chart at this point, even Robertson, but they just really played well. Not much I can say that's negative about any of them. All right, now we're going to get to players. You wanted me to lump Sandine and Lilia Grin together. Why? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess naturally, Leafs fans kind of do this anyway. They're both first-round picks. I mean, they're both Swedish. They're both defensemen. Obviously, lots of reasons to group them together. Lilia Grin naturally was taken before Sandin, and he's the right shot. He was the hyped one, especially in his draft year. He had mono. He slipped. We grabbed him. And it's funny because Sandin looks like he's ready to make this team absolutely. He looked ready to make it last year. Now he looks really ready. And Lilligren, he kind of looks like Sandin did last year, which is funny because he's supposed to be a year ahead, but I guess he's like a year behind. It's a bit slower, but it is what it is. He was really one of the best defensemen, if not the best defenseman, for the Marlies last year before he had some injury problems. He was really doing well as their number one to start the year on that top pairing. So it's just exciting to see both of them. They just finally both have at least enough muscle to not be knocked off the buck every shift. So that was really nice, and it really hasn't slowed them down. How about Travis Boyd? He was pretty surprising. I mean, I don't really know too much about Travis Boyd. I've seen some footage of him. You know, I've crunched numbers on him. Like, I have a number of players. But his compete level is very good. I guess it's a very, you know, Babcockian thing to say. But he's just a very solid player. He's well-rounded. You know, six points in 18 games, I believe, last year for the Capitals. And he's kind of like a Joey Anderson type, you know, in the sense that, like, he's he's tough on the puck. He might have, like, a tad more skill, but he's also, I guess, a bit more mature. I guess they both have a bit of NHL experience. But, you know, at the end of the day, I was just Travis Boyd. He really doesn't have a clear path to minutes, but he signed here for a reason. And I just like his compete. I like his fight. Miko Lettinen from the KHL, the NHL rookie. So for Lettinen, you know, the defensive side of his game looked a tad weak. Keith commented on this after the game. He's still kind of trying to adjust to the pace. But offensively, obviously, he looked great. His ability to get point shots through, that was something we heard about before he arrived. 
was very evident yesterday. And similar to Barabanov, you know, you can just tell he's a professional. He has that aura around him when he's on the ice. You know, he's you can tell he's been around the block. He's not 21 or 22 like some of these other guys, you know what I mean? He just looks like a professional, and especially for a defenseman, the fact that he's physically and mentally more mature coming to us than a raw prospect, that's big because obviously defense takes longer to develop, and we really need help on D. So. Also in that age range, Jimmy VC. So for Jimmy VC, he's an interesting case because obviously he was very hyped coming off the Hobie Baker when he didn't initially sign with Nashville, who drafted him. And so he had a stint with the Rangers, had three really good years there, proved that he was an NHL player, scoring at around a 20-goal pace, around a 35- to 40-point pace. Then last year, he took a step back in Buffalo. He wasn't playing power play for them. He was playing in a more defensive role. He was kind of driving his own line instead of being set up, which is not like the greatest situation for him. It's going to be interesting to see what he can actually do as a Leaf because we obviously have so many good players, or at least, you know, we have the four in our top six who just really need complementary pieces. And VC is that kind of guy. He can play well with good players because he has the skill set, even if he's not up to as good as they are. Tavares has said he likes playing with him so far, so who knows what will happen with VC. Finally, and last but certainly not least, Pierre Engvall. So when it comes to Pierre Engvall, his path to minutes, there's a lot of barriers there. Essentially, you know, he was really good when he first came in the lineup last year. Obviously, towards the end of the year, he wasn't playing so well after he signed his extension. And even though I thought he had a pretty good game, he was filling in for Kerfoot. I think he took good advantage of that. But Keith was so harsh on him, talking about how it's been almost a year since he scored in the post-game interview. And then also just talking about how he expects him to be better. But again... You know, Keith, similar to Adam Brooks and other players, he's had Engvall with the Marlies. You know, he knows them really well. So this is coming from a place of love. And, you know, it's kind of exciting to think that he might have the potential for more and that Keith sees that potential. So maybe some harsh words draw it out of him. Who knows? All right, that does it for this installment of The Lightning Round. And that's all, folks. Well, that just about does it for episode two. But before we go, we did mention some interesting things on the horizon. For starters, we're going to start hosting events to thank our listener base. As you know, we're a new podcast and are very thankful to have the audience we already do. To show our gratitude, we're going to be doing a special giveaway in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for more details on that. Otherwise, we are in talks for a potential partnership, but we don't want to jinx it. So we'll leave it at that. In any case, this has been Ev and Luke for the Toronto Marl Bros podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.